Bill said, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. We want to welcome everybody that's here and everybody online. Uh, like you've heard a couple of times already this morning, we are going to be in a sensitive part of the scriptures today talking about adult, uh, adultery and lust. And so I uh, just want to let you guys know. And also, if you're a guest, welcome. You know, we're going right into it, okay? Uh, no, it's awesome. So if you want to, go ahead and open up to uh, Matthew chapter 5. That's where we'll be today. Uh, and as you, as you turn there, uh, just to share you guys a little bit of something. So over the last few years, uh, every now and then I started having some like pain in my neck. Uh, and then oh, this last year, the neck pain started going down to my arms. So clearly something's getting on my nerves is what's happening here. That was a, kind of a pun. That was kind of, okay. Uh, so I decided, well, it's probably time to take this a little bit more seriously. So I've gone a couple times this year to get an MRI. Now, some of you guys have gotten an MRI before. You may not know what it is. If you want to know what it is, this is probably a terrible way to describe it with doctors in the house or whatever. Uh, but it's like a, a really intense, fancy x-ray. So you've got something that's going on inside of you. You can't see from the outside. You need to take a deeper look on the inside. So you get this MRI. They put you, they strap you down on this table. They lock you down. They kind of will you back into this, like, tomb. And they put you underneath there. And you're, like, uncomfortable for entirely way too long as this machine scans uh, the inside of you. But the point, really, there's kind of two things that happen with an MRI. One of them is that um, you, you, you get a picture, a diagnosis of what's going on inside of you that can't be seen from the outside. And secondly, uh, it gives you a new appreciation for the freedoms that we have to scratch our nose whenever we want. Yeah, so, yeah. But in this series called Reorder, uh, we're looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and it's the most famous message ever preached by anyone throughout history. Jesus takes everything we thought we knew about our lives, about God, and flips them upside down. And in his sermon, especially in the part of the sermon that we're in right now, Jesus is performing kind of like a spiritual MRI on us, looking past our outward appearance and our outward performances inside to our hearts. And like an MRI, he's going to give us a diagnosis of what's going on, how we're broken and what it takes to be healed. It's an inside-out transformation. Because what we all truly need is, in order to fix what's broken is not just a, a new set of outward behaviors and rules to follow, but inside, we need a transformation of the heart. So today, uh, buckle up, because we're going to get a spiritual MRI from Jesus together. Not just looking at our hearts, but looking at the desires that flow from our hearts. So let's jump right into our text today. Uh, as Bill already read with us, we're going to pick things up uh, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 27. Jesus says this. He starts by saying, you have heard it said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So Jesus starts this section just like he did last week's, if you were here, and just like he will for the next few messages with the statement, you have heard that it was said. And then in our passage, he follows that by quoting scripture, specifically the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. So when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, we actually learn a few things, even from that small statement. Firstly, that Jesus is talking to uh, the religious people that are out in the crowd in front of him. Not just the scribes and Pharisees that we talked about, like the professional Jewish people, but all the Jewish people in the crowd. And how do we know that? Well, because Jesus assumes that they're familiar with the scriptures, right? And he has a word for those who think they know God's word. And what does that mean for us today? Well, that if we are the faithful religious people 
who know God's word, this phrase should get our attention. Jesus is talking to us. So secondly, what we know, and and this may seem obvious, but by Jesus saying, you have heard it was said, Jesus is saying, you have already been taught about sex, a sexual ethic from somewhere. You have heard it said is Jesus saying someone somewhere has given you an idea about what sex is and your part to play in it. And obviously in this context to the crowd, where they had heard it was about sex with scripture. That was the voice that they had heard. But as I was studying, I was wondering for myself, if Jesus were here in the flesh today, like giving a sermon in front of us right now, and he looked at me in the eye and he said, Mike, you have heard it said, what voice would Jesus be referencing that I've been listening to? In other words, would he follow that statement by saying, you have heard it said about sex, and then would he quote the Bible to me? Or does Jesus know that I've been listening to other voices, voices from our culture? Would Jesus look at me, would he look at us and say, you have heard it said from your social media feeds and your streaming binging and from Hollywood or romance novels that you shall find your worth in your sexual identity? Or you shall find your value in your sexual desirability by others. You have heard it said. For us, it should prompt us to ask, who are we listening to? Because like Pastor John says, and he's absolutely right, that we are all always being formed by something all the time. We are constantly being shaped, being discipled by someone, by some voice, either this world's or God's. So what voice are we listening to specifically in shaping us around the ideas about sex? Okay, back to the text. So Jesus says again, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, the seventh commandment. Jesus knew that the people would be familiar with this passage and even in agreement with it. Adultery is when a married person has a sexual relationship with someone who is not his or her spouse, breaking the marriage covenant. And a good God forbids it. And the crowds would have understood that. In fact, Jesus didn't feel the need to explain this part any further. Instead, he continues. And what he continues with, what he said, shocked the crowd. For any of those listening to him, that was nodding along to the seventh commandment, assured of their personal holiness because they had never broken it with their lives, Jesus, giving them a spiritual MRI, tells them and us that many of them, in fact, had broken it because they had broken it with their hearts. That what is happening inside our heart is of more importance than simply what happens outside with our hands. He says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In this statement, Jesus is continuing his message, if you remember from verse 20, where he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, if you remember in those crowds, they would have looked to the Pharisees and scribes as the good ones. 
Those that if anyone was righteous, they were, because you could tell by watching their outward behavior. But again, Jesus is going to tell them and us what they needed most was not a change of behavior, but a transformation of the heart. Not an outside-in righteousness, but an inside-out one. And to drive home this point and and their need and our need for an inside-out righteousness, Jesus uses the example of adultery, lust, and our deepest heart's desires. So let's look again uh, a little bit deeper at verse 28 together. Jesus says this, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, before we uh, continue, let's make it clear um, that Jesus, uh, when he talks about lust, that this isn't just a problem for men, okay? Although it may sound like it here, we know that Jesus and Scripture, and even just looking around at the evidence of the world around us, right, make it clear that sexual sinfulness and brokenness can be found in all of us. And the call for sexual righteousness is for all of us as well. So this message is for both men and women. But the very clear point that Jesus is trying to make in the crowd is this. External acts of obedience cannot cover up a sinful heart beneath. The most important place we need a righteousness is in here. So he uses this specific phrase, lustful intent, to describe the sinfulness of the human heart. And it's all about desires. So let's look at it together. Firstly, let's identify some examples of what lustful intent could look like, could be. It's the lingering gaze upon someone fantasizing about what they would look like and be like in a sexual relationship. It's going online, looking at pornographic videos and images. It can even be in desensitizing ourselves to the sexual context in media, on television, movies, and online, where we are so accustomed to watching with our eyes or imagining in our minds sexual scenarios that we've lost the dark impact that those subtle, lustful thoughts have on us. And obviously, there are a lot more ways and examples of how men and women walk in lust for someone. But here, in this word, Jesus will unpack our ideas on lust, taking them even further through his specific word choice here. Because the word here translated lustful intent is the word epithemeo. It's a word found dozens of times throughout the New Testament, and it literally means to strongly desire. It's a type of all-encompassing desire, a longing, a drive that consumes someone. More often in Scripture, it's tied to an evil, selfish desire from the heart. In fact, Dr. Tim Keller says this of epithemeo. It's a word that means literally an inordinate desire, an over-desire, an idolatrous desire. This is a word that means to take something good and try to get from it what you can only get from God. In a way, it's a desire for the things only God can provide without going to God to get them. It's running away from the very things our souls are longing for. So what does this have to do with sex, adultery, in our hearts? Well, everything. 
Jesus intentionally uses that word, epithemeo, that our primary problem with sin, sexual sin and all sins, is not just an unrighteous external behavior, but the desires of an unrighteous internal heart, a heart with desires, not set on seeking God, but seeking ourselves. The problem is that we have the opposite of the heart described a few verses earlier in the Beatitudes, if you remember, when Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And again, Jesus is not telling the crowds in front of him anything new about their hearts from Scripture, but a continuation of the truth of the Old Testament, like when God spoke to the prophet Samuel about what he should remember as he was looking for Israel's next king. And God said, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And how in the book of Jeremiah, if you remember, God talked about the state of our sinful hearts when God said this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we see here, in other words, God desires the pure in heart. God sees into our hearts, and God does not see pure hearts. <laughs> so Jesus then, going back to the crowd, Jesus is saying the acts of sexual immorality and sinfulness are not primarily an act of the body. They're an act of the heart. And it stems from a heart full of evil, over-desires. You might say epi-desires, not set upon God. But again, what does that really mean to lust from the heart in this way? Well, by using the word epithemeo, Jesus is telling us that the root of our lust is not merely desire for sex or momentary pleasure, but a misdirected, sinful desire for something much deeper. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, epithemeo, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, the beginning of lust is the loss of God. And what I mean by that is that anytime we have these longings inside of us that we think sex or sexual gratification can ultimately fulfill, longings to be known, wanted, loved, accepted, a longing for comfort, or pleasure, or even to be thrilled, desires in us that in and of themselves aren't wrong or evil, but when we attempt to fill and satisfy them without God, will ultimately lead us to sin and evil choices, to pain and consequences. We lust because we take these strong desires in us, and instead of running to God with them, we believe the lies of this world that we can find satisfaction without it. So it reminds me of the story written in 1945. It's called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith by Bruce Marshall. So in it, there's this fictitious priest. His name's Father Smith. And so he's walking home one day, kind of in the city, and he comes across a woman of the world, uh, an author. She's an author of some sexually explicit romance novels. And they start engaging in conversation with one another. And then they're chatting. She's pretty much chastising Father Smith for his like, prudish views on sex and asks him how he can possibly live a life without sex. And he gives kind of this wry reply, says, well, people's bodies at their very best are imperfect 
but they're only getting worse by the day. It's kind of a joke. <laughs> then he says, but I find the beauty of God ever increasing. But the most quoted line of the book is when she replies to that comment saying, oh, I see. You use religion as a substitute for sex. To which Father Smith replies, I still prefer to believe that sex is a substitute for religion and that the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. What Marshall was saying, in a way, was about those epi desires in us, these deep desires for God that we both have and simultaneously deny. That when the young man goes to the brothel or the woman looks at the website online or the young adult binges that explicit show, that while our sinfulness and guilt are our own and by our own choice, the deepest, deep down hunger that we have in those moments is actually for God. We just choose to run the other way with it. It's a picture we see in the book of Acts, chapter 17. So the apostle Paul, comes into the city of Athens. And he walks through the city and he is overwhelmed by all the different statues and idols to all the gods that they serve. A God for everything, a God for wine, a God for sex, a God for partying, a God for war, a God for time, a God for crops, a God for everything imaginable. So many gods that Paul even notes that they are so afraid of offending a God by forgetting one that they have this statue that just says to the unknown God making sure that they cover all their bases. So Paul, heartbroken and full of compassion, preaches a sermon saying, people of Athens, look around you. You are desperately longing for God. You are looking for him everywhere, and yet you're not looking for him at all. Turn from these false idols with false promises and false hopes and turn to the one true God over all these things and over you. Reach out to him, seek him, for he is not far. You're running everywhere, but to God for your hope. Good thing our culture today is nothing like ancient Greece. One more example, more personally, about this idea of running from God to try to satisfy our desires. So it reminds me of something that happened last weekend. So um, I was watching our three little kids while Aaron was gone at the women's retreat. So I decided to load our three kiddos, uh, twins are about to turn six and our four-year-old, into the car. And we went up to the Udvar Hazi. Is that how you say it the right way? Udvar Hazi, Air and Space Museum, just down the road. Uh, I went there because it was free. Um, so they, um, but literally, I loaded them up, and we're walking in the door. And as we're walking in, somebody's walking outside of the door, and they pointed at me, and then they pointed behind me, and they go, uh, sir, <laughs> like that. So I turn around, and our four-year-old Aiden somehow got mixed up and was beelining it away from me, back to the street, back to the parking lots, but he's screaming out, Daddy, Daddy, where are you? Where are you? Our little guy running away from the very thing he needed most. So whether it's Aiden running from daddy, young man ringing the bell at the brothel, city full of idols, those are all pictures of epimetheo, the deepest longings we have that only God can meet, and yet we are running the other way with them, condemned in our sin, and our souls never truly satisfied. 
So again, back to our passage. This is Jesus saying by the use of epithemeo that the root of our lust issues isn't a behavioral problem, but a worship problem. We are looking to the wrong God to satisfy us. Because hear this, we always take our desires and run to whatever we think can satisfy them. Our desires could be for acceptance, love, and validation, and we don't think God can handle it. So we run to sex, to relationships, to pornography, to the arms and validations of others, because we think they can give us what our souls long for. Our desire could be to finally be enough, and we don't think God can give us that. So we run to our jobs or our families or our achievements or our affirmations and likes, whatever we think will satisfy our longings, our desires, our epithemeo. We always take our desires and run to whatever we think will satisfy them. And when it's not, not God, it's false gods or what we might call idols. And we know it's not just sex. It's everything. Everything can be an idol. As John Calvin says, our hearts are idol factories. We just churn them out. A million idols offering a million promises to satisfy our heart's desires. And yet, there is only one satisfaction we were meant for. So that's when, as we continue and we see Jesus saying in verses 29 and 30, something that sounds at first pretty hardcore. But when we see how, and know how serious our sin is, how destructive and damaging our idolatry and chasing our sinful desires are, I think we see what Jesus says in a gracious, loving light. When he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. So is Jesus saying salvation by mutilation? <laughs> well, obviously not. Then what is he saying? Friends, he is saying that sin is so serious, your life so precious, and God's honor so worthy that dramatic, radical, faithful action and the pursuit of holiness and the rejection of these idols should be expected in us. The Puritan John Owen is famous for saying along these lines, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. God is serious about us being serious, about confronting and confessing and repenting from the sin in our lives. I think John Owens is echoing Colossians 3, 5, and 6. It says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Put to death. Cut it off. Sin is serious business. Wrath is coming. And did you catch that there's one in that list that God commands us to put it to death? Evil desires. You want to know what word that is? Epithemeo. 
Okay, at this point, you might be asking yourself, okay, how do I know that one of my desires has kind of crossed the line into one of those like over-epi sinful desires? Uh, well, first of all, if you're feeling that way, I would run with that question to God. You need to run that with him and pray and seek him on that. But here are some things that might be helpful to consider as you're processing. Am I like following after and being ruled over this like over-epi desire? Let me give you three quick questions. One, does this desire require you to sin, to satisfy it? And that may, may, mean, that may seem obvious. Does this desire require you to sin to satisfy it? But it's a simple test. If your desire is causing you to lust and commit adultery, then yes, that is an evil desire. If your desire is causing you to be selfish or hurtful or lie or hoard, well, then yes, it's an idolatrous epi-desire. Because, guys, we never sin our way into holiness. So does this desire, second question, lead me to treat people as objects, to treat image bearers of God as things? Does the desire for sexual validation or pleasure lead me to use others, whether on the screen or in my bed, as objects and things to be consumed for my own appetite? Do my passions and desires cause me to treat people who disagree with me or stand in my way as disposable or worthless fools? Or for me as a parent, this one hurts, <laughs> does my desire for approval and being enough cause me to find my worth in my children's achievements and turn them into objects to satisfy my desires? then I might have an epi-desire with my children. Lastly, does this desire cause me to be more or less satisfied in God? And whatever I'm pursuing, am I pursuing it for the greater cause of knowing God more? Or is this desire subtly or intentionally pulling me away from knowing God? trusting, and being increasingly satisfied in God alone. Now, these aren't perfect questions, and these aren't even all the questions to ask ourselves, but the idea would be to start the process with God and with one another of looking at our lusts, looking at our desires, looking at the things in us that are still running from God to find satisfaction and to rechannel and reorder those desires. But how do we do that? How do we have such a faith that we're willing to, to put to death or cut off those evil desires in us? How do we live this way? Well, unlike Eastern religions like Buddhism, desires are not fixed by like, simply being suppressed. And unlike the Western religion of our culture today, desires are not fixed by simply being indulged in. Jesus tells us that our desires are meant to be channeled, redirected, reordered back to where they belong, back to God. We need to replace our desires. That's how we put our evil desires to death, by turning them into holy desires. So we've been saying that the root of our epi-desires is that we are looking to things in this world to give us only what God can give. So it's natural to ask, what is it? that only God can give us. So I'm going to give you three things. This first one may sound overly simplistic, but I'll explain. Only God can give us God. 
Only he can give us himself. Accept no substitute. Here's what I mean. There are things that only God himself possesses, things that he made us to long for in him. He is the great I am. You remember that? The substance of life and existence, our very life and existence only comes from him. And he is the author of life. It's like Paul, when he was talking to the city of Athens, he was saying the sovereign God over all things is working his good plan over history, including intentionally creating and designing each one of us and placing us into his story at this exact moment for the purpose that we would reach out to him. And not only that, he alone has the power and promise to take all the brokenness inside us and all the brokenness in the world around us, all the injustice and abuse and every tear and heart-aching cry and scream from a place of despair, only he can promise and deliver a coming redemption where all the curse of sin and brokenness and death will be undone. All the tears will be wiped away. All the insecurities and doubts and self-loathing and shame will be eradicated in the light of his holy presence. He alone is all that and infinitely more. Only God can give us himself. But not only that, he alone is the like gushing spring of love, goodness, acceptance, joy, hope, and rest that our deepest epithemeos long for. And only he can give us what our broken and sinful lusts and evil desires promise to give but can't. True soul satisfaction. The longing for acceptance and being desirable that we search for in the lusts of this earth and this heart, Jesus alone can fill that desire. The longing for validation and being enough that we desperately look for in our jobs, in our kids, in our families, in our relationships, in our accomplishments can only be found in Jesus' love for us. The peace and comfort and contentment we try to purchase or elect or control can only be found in resting in the arms of Jesus, king over all things. Anything and everything our souls have ever desperately desired can only truly be found in Jesus, and he's ready to give it all to us. Friends, literally, what on earth can promise you any of that? Literally. But all they can do is promise that they can never deliver. Only Jesus can. All our evil desires can do is keep us from the promises in him. And that's why Jesus is so serious about sin. It's because of love. He knows what our sin is keeping us from, what our evil desires are keeping us from. And he loves us enough to tell us, be serious about your sin, to put it to death, to cut it out. And Jesus not only tells us to be serious about our sin, but Jesus shows us how serious he is about our sin. By again, giving us only what he can. The reason he can give our soul satisfaction is because he alone can give us what we're most desperately longing for, our salvation. 
Jesus is so serious about our sin that he came to take it from us by becoming sin for us. The very one who in this passage said it's better to to cut out your eye or cut off your arm in order to enter the kingdom, did it for us. Himself cut off so we could be brought in. Jesus, the sinless, spotless, perfect Lamb of God, took the cross of our sin so that we could be accepted. All our evil desires, our sinful epithemeos, and our lusts and sinful idolatries that we racked up on ourselves, all of our running from God and our sin, Jesus took upon himself on the cross. Our sin fell on him on the cross. And as it did, he cried, Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was cut off in this weird, mysterious way so that we could be brought in. Our sin on him, his righteousness and perfect record given to us. He was cut off, we were brought in. Only in Jesus can God's just wrath against our sin be fully paid for, and yet our acceptance into his kingdom secured. And the moment we believe, we are forever fully forgiven, new creations, given new hearts, Again, not a righteousness on the outside with outward behaviors, but a righteousness that stems from a newness of heart. With a new heart, a new calling for a new desire for God alone. So when my four-year-old Aiden was running away from me at the museum, crying out, Daddy, Daddy, why are you? I was standing there, I had the other two kids, I was yelling at him, like, stop. Turn around. I'm over here. Come back. But Aiden kept running. So as a loving father, what did I do? I ran after him. I overtook him. I swooped him up in my arms. And friends, that is what God has done for you. In our sinful running, God chased us down and lifted us up into his saving arms of grace. Jesus is God's pursuit of us chased us down by coming in flesh to earth, chased us down by taking our cross of our sin, idolatry, and shame, chased us down to believe and surrender to his grace, scooped us up into his arms of love, even when we were running away from him, his grace overtakes us. There is no sexual experience No website or video, no new gender identity, no arms of a superficial lover. Nowhere will you find the loving eyes of acceptance, a desire for you, and a feeling of worthiness than in the eyes of the King of Heaven, Jesus, who decided the cross was worth it to be with you. That's a heart desire changing type of love to be overtaken by. Have you been overtaken by God? Overtaken in awe by the love of God to save you in Jesus. Overtaken by surrendering to him, giving him not just your outward behavior, but your very heart to his transformational mercy. So overtaken that all of life is laid before him, inside out, so that every square inch of you now belongs to him and his transformational grace, that's a new reordered life in Jesus. So what does that kind of life look like? 
a reordered heart with reordered desires that is so overtaken by God that we're willing to do whatever it takes to live for his glory. Well, I'll let the Apostle Paul speak for himself. And he says this, it's kind of small, so I'll read it. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the worshipful confession of a reordered heart, a new heart with new desires, Christ above everything. And friends, that is available right now. Let God overtake you. If you've never, ever stopped, confessed to God that you've been running to fill your heart with something only he can satisfy, that you've been running to false idols and the false gods of this world, if you've never confessed that, turn your heart to him and say, Jesus, you're all I need. Now, believe he lived the perfect life you and I should have lived. He died on the cross, the death that we deserve to die, and he rose again. That his new life is our new life. That his new life is our new heart. Give yourself to Jesus today. If you want to talk more or pray more, come talk to pastors, deacons, elders up here on the stage after we would love to talk to you about nothing more. But as a family, I want to close with this thought. Jesus is doing that spiritual MRI on our hearts right now. And I don't know if it's sexual lusts or just the desires of a heart anywhere else where you're seeking to find your satisfaction apart from God. But I want to I ask us to, to take these three questions I'm going to share and run to God with them. These three questions. What are your epi desires? What are the things in your life right now that you're running to to find satisfaction and meaning and purpose instead of running to God. And in that, what step of faith is God calling you to take? Is there something in your life you need to put to death? Is there something you need to cut out in pursuit of that new life that God has called you into? Is there something right now, what step of faith, as radical as it may be, Because God's changing your desires for him above all things. And lastly, when was the last time you were overtaken by God and his love for you? I remember reading a book years ago uh, from a pastor, and he wrote it, and he, and he asked the question to, to us who are reading it. When's the last time the gospel brought you to tears? When you think about the idolatry of heart, the sinfulness, the running from God, and yet... And yet, his love for you so great that he chased you down to the furthest extent to take the hell of sin of a cross for you to bring you back to him. 
bring me back to him. Not because we're worthy, not because we earned it, not because somehow we were better than anybody else, but purely out of grace and love, he chased you down and rescued you. That is the love that changes everything. When's the last time you were overtaken by that? Take a moment. Remember. Friends, if we really believe this, how can any part of our life be the same? How can we be looking like the rest of the world? How, how, can, we, how can our lives be pursuing the same things? I think that's what Paul is saying. Man, whatever is standing in the way of God, you getting my whole heart, take it away. It's garbage. Friends, that's what I want for me. That's what I want for us. So, right now, let's just be overtaken for a moment. Just sit in awe of God. Creator of the universe came here to rescue you. Who loves you more than you could ever imagine. Who is a satisfaction to your soul way deeper than anything this world offers you. And he's here right now calling you to himself. So let's pray together, and then we're going to respond by singing and lifting our hearts and voices and lives to the very one who rescued us. So pray with me. Jesus, you are God. You are the king of heaven. You are the glorious one beyond imagining. And yet you humbled yourself to come down to be a servant take a cross, to die like a criminal. Because you love us. Because you want us. Because your desire was for us. So Lord, I pray that you would take any competing desires in our heart, anything that's trying to lie to us, to keep us away from you and being satisfied in you. Lord, that we would lift those up to you, that we would cut those out of our lives. And Lord, we would just be a people who are so overtaken and overwhelmed by the greatness of who you are and the great love you have us for us in the gospel that we would be a people that shine like stars in the universe as we go out. Lord Jesus, transform us, take us, reorder us by your great love. We lift us up in Jesus' name.